Good evening, citizens. My name is Ban Shattersong, former captain of the Bloody Hands Mercenary Company. I'm cold, I'm tired, and I have been trapped in this labyrinth for a long time. I have a feeling that time is only going to stretch further into the future. I've told you recently there's some tales around the plague wolves of Varushka. Their monstrous forms, appetites and low cunning. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about what I know from the monsters of the Empire. Now when I say monsters, it's a term that means something different to a Varushkan citizen and, let's say, a Navari citizen. In Varushka, monsters are put into two broad categories of wolves and sovereigns and some of the darkest and most dangerous creatures in the whole world, including outside the Empire, can be found within the forests of Varushka. However, there are other great beasts legendary and mundane, that exist outside Varushka too. So I thought, in this, for the sake of maybe saving your skin one day, I'd tell you about all of them. And you can digest, excuse the pun, all the information you'd like about each creature. But first, let's discuss those hailing from Varushka. So Varushkan monsters... Varushka is dangerous, and the dangers come in many shapes. Some of these shapes are familiar to the other citizens of the Empire. Disenfranchised or lazy people take to banditry. <coughs> Using the isolation of the Varushkan wilderness to create hidden settlements, raiding their neighbours and travelling in caravans to sustain themselves from year to year. They are reviled as parasites by civilised Varushkans, and those bands that survive more than a few years tend to fall under the sway of dark forces. There are also orcs here who take advantage of that same isolation. These orcs tend to be the remnants of larger nations defeated by the Varushkans, and while they are a threat, they are rarely any more pressing than any other disenfranchised bandit gang. As with the bandits themselves, the Varushkan orcs tend to make pacts with the horrors that lurk under the trees, sometimes becoming their agents. However, the mundane dangers of Varushka pale beside the supernatural ones. The weakest and most common of these are termed wolves. They are hungry, instinctual horrors that seek to feast on living flesh. Ghouls and husks are common examples of wolves. They tend to appear in large groups and besiege a valley or fall on travellers in large numbers, but they can usually be driven off by strength of arms or, in equal measure, cleverness. The primary task of the boyars and the schlachter is to keep the wolves at bay. Another example of a wolf would be the dubik of the deep forests, animate, plant-like creatures that thirst for human blood and inhabit certain 
isolated and tangled woodlands. They have an ability to mimic human speech and seek to draw unwary travellers off the road so they may feast. On occasion, they gather in sufficient numbers to try and overwhelm a veil, and if they are successful, the buildings are claimed by the forest with supernatural speed. Despite their superficial appearance, they are not related to the forlorn husks. Rather, the Volhov claim that they are connected to some slumbering vegetative sovereign that sleeps in the black earth of Voldemort. This sovereign is somewhat confusingly referred to as the Dubik, and said to have a particular hatred for changelings. And whilst wolves can be dangerous, a more powerful threat are the sovereigns. A far cry from the instinctual terrors of the wolves, these creatures are powerful and willful individuals. Perhaps they are corrupt boyars, empowered by sinister bargains, meddling eternals or cunning conspirators such as the Volodny. They are intelligent, patient and intelligent. Sovereigns tend to be restricted to the spicit. Gosh, I can feel my tongue twisting already. But I hope there's not a... Nah, I'm sure that noise was nothing. Sovereigns tend to be restricted to specific areas. And many of them labour under bindings or strictures that prevent them from preying on the Varushkins directly. While wolves can move more freely, many sovereigns tend to slumber in their lairs until external influences wake them up. The actions of foolish bandits, thieves and roving orc bands are often blamed for awakening the more powerful sovereigns. And many rules or restrictions in Varushka are designed to prevent people interfering with them and drawing their attention. Sovereigns sometimes work through agents who possess more freedom to operate outside of their lairs. Wolves can rarely be reasoned with, but sovereigns often prevent and present a civil mien. They can be bargained with. The Dubik is such an example. Other famous sovereigns include the Howling Queen, who is said to slumber beneath the razors in northeast Miakrova. The Hungry King, believed to rest in a barrow under Broken Barrow in northern Karsk. And Agrament, an eternal whose fascination with cannibalism makes his heralds and agents a threat to some isolated veils, especially in northern Miakrova. Not every monstrous threat in Varushka fits easily into the wolf or sovereign category. Some creatures seem to fall part way between the two. They are intelligent, like sovereigns, but lack individual power. Or they are motivated by appetites more appropriate to wolves. Amora is such an example. 
Midway between the wolves and the sovereigns and power are the shape changers, the most common of whom are Mora. Strange bird-like creatures who can assume pleasing shapes to go amongst humans or lure travellers to their deaths. The Mora can bypass many protections to visit human settlements. But by doing so, they become tightly bound to the rules of hospitality and cannot directly act against gracious hosts. While they are shapeshifters, they cannot take on the form of specific people. They can disguise themselves as human, don't get me wrong, but they cannot take on the guise of a specific human. Should one of your family, or perhaps friends, travel to distant lands and suddenly return in the depths of the night, you should watch your guard. Rasalka are another creature similar to Mora. They are shape-changers, but their natural form appears to be that of a water or sea-dwelling beast rather than a bird. They are very rare, even by Varushkin standards, but are most commonly seen in the Semalak and the frozen lakes of the far north. They dwell in certain bodies of water, seeking to lure travellers to a watery doom. In addition to their natural shape, they can assume the form of a human or orc, often a beautiful youth or an aged figure in need of assistance. They can also take on a nightmarish form, humanoid with aquatic features, razor-sharp teeth, wide eyes and grasping claws. Those who let the Rasalka touch them are often rendered helpless by their touch, paralysed by the strength-sapping charm of the creatures. Some Wintermark travellers claim that similar creatures dwell in the northern oceans. They call them Hilji, but they consider them helpful, positive spirits. By contrast, some marchers claim more predatory creatures akin to shark shapeshifters dwell in the gullet and creep about vessels at anchor to devour the sails aboard. There are also circumstantial reports that the Thule, the orcs of the north, know similar beasts. Finally, there are plague wolves. I've discussed them at length, but plague wolves and elder plague wolves can often sit in between the gap of the two, although an elder would most often be counted as a sovereign. Those are the monsters of Varushka, the wolves, the sovereigns, and the Mora, Rasalka, and plague wolves that sit somewhere in the middle. To talk of other beasts and legendary creatures, let me start with perhaps the griffin. The griffin is a beast that combines the aspect of an eagle and a lion. They are about the size of an adult ox with the forequarters of a great bird of prey and the hindquarters of a large cat. Despite their size, they are not built to be ridden. There are tales of slightly built heroes and children riding on the back of them, 
but they are almost certainly fanciful. Should a Dornish noble claim to have done so, they're probably lying. It is doubtful a griffin could even get off the ground with a rider, and even less doubtful that they would tolerate one for any period of time. An adult griffin is a match for an armoured knight. The sharp talons tear through light armour and deliver crippling injuries. They favour hilly and mountainous areas that overlook fertile plains. A pride of griffin will hunt across a large area, and they have been known to be a nuisance to animal herders in their territory. They mostly avoid humans, but they are noted for their ferocity when threatened. They are particularly defensive of their young, which are born live rather than eggs. And there are stories of a pride taking someone or tracking them, if that person has injured one of their cubs. More so, they will follow that person across hundreds of miles. They are capable of coordinated attacks and tactics and work together to bring down larger prey. Legends from Wintermark speak of the now extinct griffins of the mountains to the west of Scarsind, hunting and bringing down adult mammoths. However, whilst griffins still exist nowadays, they are very rare within the Empire. There are a few prides on the lower slopes of Urizen and the mountains of southern Karaman, but otherwise they have been hunted and driven out of areas claimed by Imperial citizens. Much larger specimens are believed to be found in the realm of summer, immense creatures that are powerful enough to be ridden by the Eternals of that realm. Some Suak hunters actually paint griffins onto their leather to draw their powerful senses and hunting abilities. It's also used extensively in the heraldry of dawn, as I'm sure you've been able to notice. It is an enduring symbol of victory, prowess and pride, and also potency. The army of the griffin's pride marches under a banner of the same creature. There are also some small trade you could say, illicit trade in griffin parts. Magicians use the feathers in rituals designed to grant strength, courage or pride, and artisans are known to work talons, hide, bones and feathers into the construction of some enchanted items. A unicorn is another creature of fantastical nature. It is a horse, like those of old, with a single spiral horn on the forehead, usually with a goat's beard and cloven hooves. Often white, although not exclusively so, they represent strength, ferocity and nobility of spirit. They are characterised as gentle in peace and implacable warriors in battle. According to stories, unicorns have the ability to variously sense evil, malignant spirits, cowardice, and in some cases, unvirtuous souls, and attack them without mercy. They also appear in tales as protectors of the innocent, defending lone children from the depredations of monsters or bandits, or aiding those who have been wronged to gain justice from their persecutors. 
All of these things are just stories, however. Unicorns do also not exist in the mortal realm. Highborn cataphracts sometimes equip their warhorses with armour designed to evoke the image of a unicorn, with specially reinforced headpieces as part of their barding. But the horns were largely ceremonial. This unicorn barding was popular with the limited Dornish cavalry, and some pieces are still preserved in both nations as relics of a bygone age. Once more used, these beautiful beasts often feature as symbols of pride and courage and dawn on their heraldry. They are quintessentially noble creatures, proud and regal on one hand, but ferocious and brave on the other. A black unicorn is sometimes used to suggest great passion, while blue and violet unicorns have been used in a few places to represent houses that have a higher than normal proportion of war witches amongst them. As with many legendary beasts, unicorns are said to exist in the realm of summer. Some Eternals possess rods and wands that they claim are made from the horns of unicorns, and their spirits are evoked in magic used to empower allies with warlike strength. Their thundering charge is sometimes referenced when casting battlefield magic that drives back an opponent. There are some other types of winged horse-like creatures, such as uh, the Pegasus, essentially, add wings. You're done. There is also a Chimera. The term is uh, yeah, it's used to describe pretty much any number of creatures that combine the parts of three or more animals. Traditionally, they appear as a lion with two heads, the second being that of a goat, stag or a dragon with a tail that ends in a serpent's head, often possessing metallic scales on the forequarters. They also often have wings, and when presented in heraldry, there are many other versions of this beast, and they incorporate different animals, they might lack wings, or have more than four legs, and so on. In stories, they are ferocious monsters, usually encountered singly, and usually representing some terrible challenge that has claimed the lives of many heroes. They sometimes appear in Varushkin folk tales as extremely destructive forces that must be tamed by cleverness. The Varushkin Chimera usually is wingless but often capable of speech, but presented as monumentally stupid and easily duped. In the stories, the Chimera is usually tricked as uh, a symbolic three times before it is ultimately defeated and either killed by some natural force or tamed and made to serve the wise heroine in the completion of further tasks. Outside of heraldry and stories, there are reports of Chimera living in the mountains east of the Barrens, but the majority are believed to live in the peaks around Farushka. They are said to be more, to be more common in Octodog where they are said to prey on the barbarian orcs that inhabit that desolate land. There seems to be a lot of diversity in the forms taken by actual Chimera, but they are always have two heads. There are no verifiable reports of actual Chimera possessing functioning wings, although there are persistent stories of some Chimera in both Cask and Skarsund 
being able to glide for short distances, similar to a, a drake, but we'll touch on those later. The Chimera is a legendary symbol of ferocious and dangerous opponents. It is supremely adaptable to battle, whether tearing into a, an opponent with its talons, poisoning them with, with its tail, or terrorizing them with its roar, or even knocking them prone with an overwhelming charge. In some legends, the Chimera can even breathe fire or spit poison, adding a ranged component to its deadly arsenal. In the heraldry of dawn, once more, of course it's dawn, it is used by houses that are especially proud of their battlefield prowess. As with the unicorn, the Chimera is sometimes evoked by those casting spells designed to empower their allies with martial prowess, but their terrifying roar might be referenced in magic that drives back an opponent, paralyzes them with terror, or drives the strength from their body, or even roots them to the ground. Firebirds, colloquially called phoenixes, are massive birds of prey that burn with the light of the sun. Some versions depict them as being close to great hawks, whilst others have more the appearance of a bird of paradise. They are strongly associated with fire, and according to legends, their feathers continue to burn even when removed from the beast, providing enough light to illuminate a room, lead a hero through a dark night, or keep predatory monsters at bay. Depending on the story, the firebird may be able to burn enemies with its gaze, or with the slash of its talons. The phoenix is a variant of the firebird, you could say. It's said to be very long-lived, and when it dies, it is consumed of irresistible flames. This creature is sometimes seen as a symbol of reincarnation. Some priests of the way consider this to be blasphemous, and claim that the phoenix actually presents the idea of resurrection and not reincarnation. The bird is reborn not as a new bird, but as a younger incarnation of the same creature. When these legendary beasts appear in stories, they are usually presented as being very wise and possessed of the power of speech. As such, they are sometimes connected to the realm of day. The typical role of a firebird is as the object of a difficult quest. It is also a powerful metaphor for ambition. While the hero aspires to capture a firebird, he must take care not to be consumed by its magical flames. The phoenix is often sought in a story in the role of a magical sage, whose many lifetimes grant it particular knowledge. It's often used in the heraldry of dawn to suggest ambition or wisdom. Both the firebird and the phoenix are often shown in stories to possess incredible healing abilities and in some cases have the ability to restore a dying person to full ardour, although such healing never comes without a price. Their presence and song is often used in stories to heal and otherwise fix the untreatable, whether they are poisoned or diseased. Consequentially, they are sometimes evoked when casting spells that purify or treat poison or weaknesses. The phoenix itself, another name for the firebird, not being an expert on those uh, 
hot birds, one could say. You might need to ask your local questing knight in Dawn. See if you can find out what the difference is. Or indeed, if any of those mightiest of heroes have encountered one. The realm of day is uh, perhaps not as exciting as a realm of summer to the Dornish knights. But still, asking is never going to hurt. The next creature is a Yale, usually depicted as a goat or antelope, with massive curling horns and a body spotted like that of a leopard, often with a lion-like tail and occasionally with clawed feet instead of hooves. While sometimes dismissed as being comical, they are used in heraldry to represent both the idea of a house whose strength is underestimated and a house that is proud of its ability to defend its territory and its people. Their goat-like characteristics are greatly exaggerated, and so for Yale comes to symbolise great tenacity, stubbornness, or a refusal to give in despite the odds. Sometimes they can be seen as more feline in appearance, like a large horned leopard. Whilst it's often believed to be entirely fictional within the Empire, it actually exists in foreign parts. The spotted antelope-like creature does indeed have clawed feet, and is known to live in hot, scrubby grassland. They are omnivorous, and often hunted by certain foreigners and prized for their horns and spotted hides. A centaur is another horse-related creature of legend, with the torso, arms and a head of a human. They are symbols that combine the strength and dignity of the horse with the skill and intelligence of a person. Some versions present a more slender creature with a body closer to that of a deer, often with the pointed ears and spiralling birthmarks of a changeling. A centaur bedecked in plate with a shield, however, whilst wielding a lance, is a powerful symbol of nobility. It's popular within Dornish houses with some kind of history of cavalry in their distant past. Some priests object to this union of human and animal as being inappropriate, but their complaints are rarely taken seriously. Sadly though, these creatures are entirely fictional. While creatures that seem to combine human and animal characteristics do certainly exist, the centaur does not. Winged serpents, not quite dragons just yet. The winged serpent is a great scaled snake with bat or bird-like wings. They are sometimes shown covered in feathers, at other times they might possess a scorpion-like stinger. They never have arms or legs and they are used in Dornish heraldry Dear citizen, you might be seeing a pattern here, as symbols for cleverness and mystical insight. The winged serpent does not exist in the mortal world, but is said to be the natural form of the Eternals of the realm of night. As a consequence, it is sometimes used on the heraldry of houses that have a higher than usual proportion of naga. Outside the empire, there is a species of flying serpent called a jaculi, and it's known to exist in tropical jungles. No longer than a person's arm, and with brightly coloured scales and feathered wings, they are said to glide between trees, 
and to possess a painful but rarely deadly sting. A Hydra, on the other hand, a much more mighty prospect. A Hydra is any serpentine or draconic monster with multiple heads. In stories, they are solitary beasts that dwell in swampy environments. They sometimes have serpentine bodies, sometimes their bodies are more lizard-like. While most hydras have multiple heads and snake-like bodies sprouting from their neck area, some have a ring of serpent-like heads around a central saurian head. Some possess a head at either end of a serpentine body, and that is also technically a form of hydra, a two-headed front and rear snake, if you will. In stories, hydras possess incredible regenerative abilities and often have a deadly poisonous bite. This combination of life and death means they are often considered to be associated with the realm of spring. In some stories, their breath itself is poisonous. They usually appear in stories as unspeakable threats that must be faced with fortitude and courage. And in many of the stories, the hero eventually dies of their wounds sustained during the battle. In at least one story, the Hydra regrows each severed head moments after it is cut from the body, making the creature impossible to kill without attacking the well-defended and armoured body. In heraldry, a Hydra usually represents a house that considers itself tenacious and resilient. Individually, you may be able to take us, they seem to say. But together, we are too powerful to defeat. The Hydra is sometimes associated with the idea of revenge, and consequently, houses that use it on their heraldry may have a undeserved bad reputation. Magicians may evoke the strength and supernatural healing qualities of the Hydra when performing healing magic, especially when that magic is intended to restore a crippled limb. Sphinxes and Manticores A sphinx is a composite creature, usually presented with the body of a lion, the wings of an eagle, and the head of a human, or very rarely another creature, and most commonly a goat. They are usually associated with wisdom or vigilance, and are often shown watching over tombs and mausoleums. Several great stone sphinxes are found in Necropolis in Highgard. They are shown as serene and distant creatures, capable of great ferocity in defence of the things that they hold dear. Manticores, by contrast, are predatory horrors lacking wings, but often with a scorpion-like tail that inflicts a deadly venom. Their bodies are usually lean and often diseased, and they may have more the look of a hyena or a jackal, rather than a lion. They are believed to be despoilers of the dead, drawn to carrion, which they poison with their noxious bodily fluids after they have eaten their fill. They are associated with bloodlust, savagery, and the worst excesses of hatred. They are said to jealously hoard knowledge and wealth and to break open tombs to get to the treasures hidden within. They are very rarely used in heraldry due to the multiple and negative associations 
A noble house did so, would be announcing that they are untrustworthy, brutal and savage. While some draw gear might appreciate the fear that using this creature might evoke, they would likely find themselves unwelcome amongst their peers. These creatures might be related, despite their wildly differing characteristics. Both sphinxes and manticores are believed to be intelligent, capable of speech, and fascinated by riddles and mysteries. The sphinx in particular is a popular image in Urizen, associated with the realms of day and night, depending on its colouring. Most commonly pale-coloured for the former, and dark-coloured for the latter. According to some fanciful reports, they are even capable of working ritual magic. There are some exotic tales of a sphinx or manticore that assumes a human form for one purpose or another. A magician might evoke the spirit of the sphinx when performing divination magic, while they might call on the dire qualities of the manticore when working with spells that weaken their opponents. A mandowler is a sturdy bear-like creature with savage talons rather than claws and a head that resembles that of a great owl with wide eyes and a savage beak. They are also known as night trippers and are often found in small family groups and like the grizzly bears they resemble, they are omnivores, although with a marked preference for raw meat over vegetables or carrion. They are not intelligent, although they have a predator's cunning and are quite capable of attacking humans if they are disturbed or angered. They are most active at twilight, but both have excellent night vision and key daylight sight. They are most common around Upwold, Skarsind, Akinia, the Afadan, Miaran, and Miakrava. Although there are also populations in Redoubt, they were introduced by the enthusiastic Urizen naturalists. These creatures are more dangerous than bears, simply because they are so ready to attack and kill humans. They do not go out of their ways to hunt us, but if a family moves into an area containing a village, it will need to be dealt with. Mandala give birth to live young, and even as cubs they are intractable, stubborn and unpredictable. The Mandala are tough creatures and shrug off powerful blows that would cripple a human, and in turn they are capable of striking very powerful blows that can bowl over anybody in armour or shatter their shield into splinters. In heraldry, they represent strength. Their bones and talons may be used in magic or crafted items to overcome obstacles with physical prowess rather than guile. Or cunning. Dragons, wyverns, and worms. If you know the difference between all three of those, excellent. Either a warden or a well-read citizen. Dragons are great bat-winged reptiles with long tails, thick scales, and tough as plate armor. They have the ability to breathe fire, or in some stories are variety of other devastating elemental forces such as lightning or freezing wind. 
They are intelligent and deadly opponents who hoard treasure and oppress humans with tyrannical demands for the sacrifice of their children and youths. Only the bravest can hope to defeat a dragon. And even then, only in stories. Wivens are savage dragon-like creatures but lack forearms. They are vicious predators and cunning rather than intelligent. They possess a venomous bite or a scorpion stinger on their tail rather than the magical ability to breathe fire, lightning or ice. Worms are massive serpentine creatures, often with stunted limbs and often exude deadly poison that blackens and blasts the very earth itself where they lair. They are often defeated in stories by cleverness rather than the direct force of arms. Dragons can represent a variety of spells, but particularly are used when referencing and creating night pouches. Or perhaps when some ritual of destruction is required, calling upon their devastating breath and strength. Unfortunately though, dragons appear to be extinct in our realm, if they ever existed at all. Occasionally, great reptilian bones are uncovered, especially in the mountains or buried in swamps, but there is no evidence that these are from dragons. They are believed to exist in the realm of summer, however, where they are the most terrible and deadly of the legendary beasts that make up the realm. If one were to enter the mortal realm, it would likely prove the match for a small army. Worms are also fictional. While some Eternals of the realm of night appear to take similar forms, they are intelligent shapeshifters rather than poisonous horrors. But finally, Wivens are real. They are very real. They are what could be seen as a particularly vicious breed of Drake. Oh, virtues protect you, should you ever face one of those on the battlefield. Finally, we have the Rakshasa. The Rakshasa is a spectacularly rare mutation amongst the jungle drakes of Jarm, infused with the power of the Winter Realm. Knowledge about these strange creatures is hard to come by, as the Jarmish guard the secrets of hunting and raising these very closely but it is believed that they are created when a draked egg is exposed to large amounts of natural winter magic. While a wild Rashaka is very dangerous, it may manifest winter-related abilities, or even, if some of the wilder tales are to be believed, actually become possessed by a winter spirit. The Amish do rear some Rakshaka, from retrieved eggs to be docile and placid. They are valued as crucibles of winter magic. It naturally gathers and coagulates within them. They exude winter-infused blood from ducts around the eyes which, if collected, can be distilled into both mana of the winter realm and into a potent drug. This drug has a powerful effect on the human mind. It is said to cool sorrow quench grief, and aid in soothing. Deep sleep 
can be gained even in the face of horrific, horrific sights. The traumatised, grieving and the cursed are all said to seek solace from the tears of a Rakshasa. Raising a tame Rakshasa from the winter-touched egg is said to take over a decade of careful attendance, magical processes and training. The art is unknown outside of Yarm, but their rulers have no interest in sharing such knowledge. It is rumoured that the thrice-cursed court, Wise Wangara and Sorin, all have an interest in these creatures. Now, Rakshasa were largely unknown to the Empire prior to the gifting of one as a domesticated drake to Empress Lizabetta from the Principalities of Yarm in the year 380 YE. To date, this is the only known Rakshasa to arrive in the Empire. However, this is only known creatures. There is one final creature I'd like to talk to you about in depth. Something closer to my experience in hunting these kind of creatures, although limited, it must be said. And that is a marsh walker. A marsh walker is a large semi-humanoid creature that appears to be made entirely plant material. Within the Empire, they are primarily found in Bregasland, Calabasa and Thurunin but they may appear almost anywhere that the marshy conditions they favour can be found. They are also found in the lands of the Druze, and the barbarians sometimes bring them along to battles. They are perhaps most dangerous when exposed to the essence of a forlorn, corrupted environment. The creatures themselves are not common, and generally not a threat to humans who give them a wide berth. Unfortunately, their migrations often take them near human settlements, and the beasts show little inclination to detour around them. Attempts to divert a marsh walker are complicated by their resilience, their resistance to fire, they are simply too damp to burn, and their ability to smash through most obstacles placed in front of them. One problem with the marsh walkers is that, in their natural state, they are simply a colony of little slimy blobs that are virtually indistinguishable from the mud in which they live. In this state, they are no threat to anyone, being primarily concerned with eating small insects, fish and plants, and splitting into more tiny, non-threatening blobs. It is only when they feel threatened, when some biological urge inside them decides it is time to move, or when someone starts building a structure near them, or even in threatening their habitat, that the colony comes together to assume the much more dangerous form of a wood-armoured humanoid. Marsh walkers appear to be masses of vegetation coated and held together with thick slime, often encased in wood and stone fragments that appear from a distance to be nothing less than armour. The beasts send, seem to almost intentionally seek out this coverage in the same way that certain crabs seek the shelter of empty shells. Sometimes human-made elements may creep into this outer covering, literal pieces of plate armour, 
twisted swords and the shattered remains of shields have all been spotted woven into the outer shell of a marsh walker. Likewise, pieces of bone and wooden hafts are sometimes bound up inside the beasts, in addition to the branches and the reeds, giving marsh walkers that have risen near battlefields or passed through war zones a distinctly eerie appearance. Studies by Marcher and Navarre naturalists have discovered that the marsh walker itself is actually a colony of innumerable tiny creatures similar to slime mould. A marsh walker is created when an entire colony comes together to travel to another location, either due to some migratory urge or to avoid some threat to their habitat. Marsh walkers have a few common traits. They are exceptionally tough. They can take punishing amounts of damage and continue moving. As long as they have access to fresh vegetation and water, they can heal almost completely within a few hours from anything short of total destruction. Their powerful vitality, coupled with their lack of vital organs and thick armour, means it is dangerous to assume that just because a marsh walker has stopped moving, that it has been defeated. Their unstoppable advance is often merely slowed by weapon attacks. Marsh walkers are also monstrous creatures. Like all such creatures, they are unaffected by many spells and martial tactics. For example, they cannot be poisoned by conventional blade venoms or knocked down with a hefty strike. And whilst arrows can wear down their reserves and cause them to retreat, they do not have the same devastating effect that they would have against human-sized enemies. Finally, marsh walkers are mighty. Even heavily armoured opponents can be bowled over or sent flying by a sweeping blow, or even have their shield shattered or their polearm splintered if it gets too close. Some rare marsh walkers have been encountered that secrete poisonous slime that weakens or even occasionally paralyzes opponents. And in a very few rare cases, marsh walkers who have been exposed to the lawn carry with them the miasmic taint of that corrupt environment, envenoming anybody who comes nearby. It's also worthy of note that marsh walkers appear to be inimical to human-made structures. They can tear down minor fortifications in, the, in a matter of hours. They quickly smash through barricades and haste, other hastily erected structures designed to try and divert their migrations. And when they move through a human settlement, they tend to leave damaged and collapsed buildings in their wake. There are incidents where the Druze have used groups of them to assault the gates or towers of fortresses. While the destruction they wreak is by no means instantaneous, it is thorough and almost irresistible. Marsh walkers do not possess any kind of culture. They are clearly aware of their environment, but they appear unintelligent of, at least as humans understand it. They can be cunning and they are capable of spotting and responding to changes in their surroundings, but they do not have a language, do not speak, and appear to respond to tone of voice only. They are known to issue great echoing horn-like moans that travel great distances across the marshes. 
There are some reports of colonies assuming humanoid form, apparently for the sole purpose. Naturalists have suggested that these serve a similar purpose to wolf howls, communicating over distance and switching simple messages between colonies. Primarily, they are motivated by their desire to move, at least from one place to another, to protect themselves from threats and to smash human structures which they come across. Left to their own devices, they generally collapse back into their component parts once they reach their destination, or once the immediate threat or structure is removed. Their behaviour is mostly animal-like and based on instinct. They encrust themselves in stone and pieces of wood to form that tough shell, and they absorb nutrients from water, sun, and the plant life that maintains it to maintain their physical form. When they migrate, they do so along reasonably direct routes. One strange behaviour, however, that has caused some difficulty in the past is that when they encounter a trod, they tend to reorient their migration along the trod in one direction or another, allowing them to move with surprising swiftness. However, they rarely stay with a trod for long, unless it is leading them towards a marshy environment. But they can present an unexpected hazard to Navari stridings. Colonies are aware of each other and appear capable of rudimentary cooperation, although they generally fight as individuals. While they often move in a loose group, a band of marsh walkers make little attempt to come to one another's aid during a fight. The Druze appear to control small groups of them through the use of ritual spring magic. The uh, specifics are unclear to imperial scholars. Marsh walkers controlled by the Druze are often festooned with fetishes and similar items, especially shrunken heads and skulls. Whether this is part of the magic that controls them, or simply to make them more threatening, is unclear. Alas, marsh walkers can survive only for a few weeks away from the damp, fertile environments in which they live. Denied water or access to fresh vegetation and insects, they become brittle and begin to die. A marsh walker in this state is desperate and will stop at nothing to reach a safe location. They can inflict massive damage in their single-minded drive to find somewhere safe. The, you could say smaller marsh walkers, have occasionally been encountered. Little larger than human size, they lack the immense strength of their larger cousins, but tend to move faster and find it easier to pass unnoticed when they leave their marshes. They possess all the unnatural vitality of their larger cousins, but seem especially susceptible to certain types of venom, which inhibits their fast healing and fast recovery abilities. The reasons that marshlings form, rather than a true marsh walker, are unclear. But naturalists have posited three scenarios that might lead to them. The most common is that a colony is too small to produce enough mass to form a true marsh walker, so the colony collapses into several smaller creatures. The less common is that a particularly large colony creates a full-strength marsh walker, but there are still parts left over which puddle together to form these smaller marshlings. The third explanation 
is that a marsh walker colony might be forced to assume the form of several marshlings by magic, emergency, or extensive damage to the primary marsh walker. In the former case, the marshlings demonstrate pack-like behaviour. They are all in some sense the same creature and seem capable of fighting together to a limited degree. The latter case is even more dangerous. The smaller satellite marshlings protect and support the central marsh walker. Again, they are all part of the same organism. The most disturbing element of marshlings is that, even more so than full-strength marsh walkers, they intend to cooperate bits of armour and human bone into their outer carapaces. Some stories from the draining of the morass talk about marshlings amongst the larger marsh walkers who looked a lot like they were wearing armour, with skulls and bits of banner woven into their shells, giving rise, no doubt, to further rumours of supernatural marsh spirits. Finally, in theory, it must be said, a sufficiently large colony could produce a marsh walker of truly exceptional size. While there are some stories of pre-imperial times of immense creatures, none have been cited in recorded history. They are largely assumed to be a creation of fiction. Now, I did say that was the final one, but I just want to drop a quick note on drakes, since I did mention them a couple of times, and I haven't explicitly covered them. Drakes are the large reptilian creatures that come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Really narrows it down, doesn't it? They are usually predatory, and while the majority are person-sized or smaller, there are a few uncommon breeds that are larger than a person. They are unknown in Wintermark and Varushka, and are most common in Dawn and the Brass Coast. They often possess savage jaws and tearing claws, and several breeds can have horns or frilled collars that protect their necks. A small number have wings, but they are abysmal flyers, barely able to stay airborne for more than a few yards or simply glide. The larger the drake, the more likely the wings are to be vestigial. They are sometimes mistaken for dragons, although they do not breathe fire and are unintelligent. Broadly, at large drake would represent a dangerous challenge for an individual hero or perhaps even a small group and is more than capable of terrorising a village. A Dornish test of metal may have been to defeat one of these creatures. The smaller drakes are more likely to be pack hunters and although it's relatively common, as common as these legendary beasts are, to have killed and fought one, you can actually find the claws, teeth and hides can be used in crafting or as trophies. Whilst some can be large, they are not behemoths and uh, they evoke images of ancient reptilians, but not the large ones. Although, those such creatures may exist elsewhere. There you have it, dear listeners. Now you know your marsh walkers, from your drakes, from your rakshasa, to your hydras, 
your centaurs, your mora, your Rosalka, and your plague wolves. Quite the tale to tell, and quite the dearth of information to absorb. But you'll have your old friend Captain Ban to thank when, well, virtue forbid it, when you ended up face to face with one of these monsters. Good luck. Happy hunting.